0: I'm going to invite you to open up your bulletin. You'll find a sheet of paper that says the God Movement on the front. And that's the sermon outline, the sermon handout that we're going to be using today as we go through Scripture. And you can use it to take some notes. You can use it for study later on. And on the back side of it is MPG. One of the things that we remind ourselves is that, you know, as MPG, miles per gallon, it's about how far you can go down the road with a gallon of gas. And more important than gasoline is the Word of God. And MPG is how far we can take or the further we can take the... The, uh, the, the message, the Word of God, and, and the challenge of the Word of God down the road, the more we will be disciples of Jesus. And so the, uh, the M is about memorizing today. You're going to have two scriptures to memorize. The P is for prayer, and that is some specific things to be praying about as it pertains to the message today. And then the glorify section is actually to do some self-evaluation and some ways that you can plug in to the areas in the church life that we're talking about this morning. And uh, uh, while I have your attention and we're thinking about God's Word from a a study standpoint, uh, I want to challenge you. We're going to start a new series next week called Shine. And it's based in Philippians, and specifically Philippians chapter 2, where Paul calls the church to shine like stars in a dark night. And that's what the church is supposed to do. And we're going to talk about how we actually shine not only for each other and shine for God, but how we shine in the community how we shine into the community with the gospel and the love of God and the opportunity for all of eternity to be changed for every person who has ever lived. And that's going to be about a five-sermon five series on Philippians. And so I want to challenge you, beginning today, to read a chapter out of Philippians during the week throughout this, this, uh, this entire series. Now, this morning we want to talk about, about the nature of the church. And I want to begin by making a statement that you all agree with, that confusion can be a very dangerous thing. Confusion can be an incredibly dangerous thing. When something is confusing to you, it it throws you off. It can blur your thinking. When something is confusing, there's the possibility for a misunderstanding or even more so misunderstandings. When there's confusion, you don't you don't have full understanding. There's, there's something important that is being missed. And because that's true, it can put you in harm's way. In fact, one of the ancient or archaic ways of thinking about confusion, the way that it was used years and years and years ago, is that confusion can mean to bring someone to ruin. Now, I'll give you an example of that from my own life. Uh, back in 1984, so we're talking you know, nearly 40 years ago, Uh, Ellen and I are in Zimbabwe which uh, in 1984 was a fairly new nation. It had only been around for a couple of years and we were looking to leave Abilene and to plant a church in Zimbabwe, Africa. We ended up going to Brazil but at that point we were thinking Zimbabwe. Now Zimbabwe is one of those places influenced by the British Empire where you know here in America we drive on the right side of the road. Steering wheel on the left we're on the right side of the road. In Zimbabwe The steering wheel is on the right side of the car, but you drive on the left side of the road. And so there were a lot of times as we're driving through Zimbabwe, I mean, it's just counterintuitive to drive on the opposite side of the road, right? And this is before there was MapQuest, before there was Google Maps and GPS and all of that. And so the way you, file, you found your way through a city that you had never been to is somebody would kind of give you directions, direction, draw you a map, but about every five minutes you're stopping and saying, hey, do you know where this street is and how do I get there? And so I was kind of wondering where this street I knew it was up close, and we ended up, and I'm also concentrating on driving on the left side of the road. And so I pass the street, Uh, It wasn't a very busy street. I mean, very, very few cars. I was able to kind of go around a bend. I did a U-turn, and I didn't do the counterintuitive thing. I did the intuitive thing, and I started driving on the right side of the road. And as I go around that curve, here comes a car ready to hit us head on. Fortunately, I was able to avoid it, but I put us in danger because I got confused. And it was scary. Now, confusion can be a very dangerous thing for a church. I mean, a lot of us have been going to church all our lives. In fact, some of us were, you know, were yanked up in the church. And we go to church every Sunday. We're a part of, of different classes. We have you know, friends. But there comes a point in which we might become confused over the very nature of the church, why it exists at all. And so there are some churches who think that they're a fortress, and that is they're suspicious of everything on the outside and they build the walls up and they protect everything on the inside and it's just about us. And then there are churches that kind of side with political uh, parties and those are found all over the religious landscape in America. There are churches that function like country clubs and they sort of give off this exclusivity vibe that it's you know, about us and no one else. There are churches all over the place. And one of the hard things to do in a fallen world is to maintain purpose. And so the really big question for us this morning is we want to get rid of all confusion or any confusion that we might have and answer the question, what is the purpose of the church? What purpose does the church serve? And the way we're going to do that is we're going to go back to Matthew's gospel that CJ just read for us. One day in Matthew's Gospel, there's an expert in the law who asked Jesus, out of all of the commandments that you find in the Jewish scriptures to us, the Old Testament, which one is the most important? Now, it was the Middle Ages when somebody finally sat down and counted them, and there were 613 commandments in the Old Testament. Now, you can see out of 613 commandments, that there might be a little confusion over which one was most important. And he asks to test Jesus. And where they may have been confused, and where we might be confused, Jesus was not confused. And he answers very directly. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is the first and the greatest commandment. And a second, and he wasn't finished, a second is like it, meaning that it is right up there in importance. He says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. All of the prophets and all of the all of the Scripture, hang on this. Now, we refer to this as the greatest commandment. And you know why? This is the way that Jesus referred to it. He said, this is the first and the greatest. And then we speed forward to the about 40 days after the resurrection. And Jesus is called. They've left south Judah. They've gone up into northern Galilee. In fact, they're by, probably by the, the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus calls them together. And now there's not 12, there's 11, because Judas has has killed himself. And those 11 disciples show up. And we would think that after all of the things that they have seen, all the things they have experienced, all of the teachings that they have heard, that they would have clarity and there would be no confusion. But when Jesus shows up, resurrected, even 40 days after the resurrection, showing himself to them, we read in chapter 28, verse 17, but some doubted. Some doubted. There's some confusion with the disciples. They are a little thrown off with what they were thinking the kingdom of God was going to look like and what the kingdom of God really looks like. They needed some clarity. They they were being given to misunderstandings, and Jesus says to them, says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Meaning that there is no higher authority in all of the cosmos. That when I speak to you, it is the words of God, the highest authority that are coming to you. And with that authority, that highest singular no other authority like it voice, Jesus says, I want you to go and to make disciples of all nations. You go into the world. And you baptize them. They go through the new birth. They participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you teach them to obey everything. Not just some of the things. Not the popular things. Not the easy things. But I want you to, te- I want you to teach them to obey everything that I have taught you. And you know what? It's daunting But don't have any confusion about this. I am with you. And that text we call the Great Commission. And so with the greatest commandment and the Great Commission, in those two texts we find five dynamic characteristics of the church. Worship, fellowship, ministry, discipleship, and outreach. And what I want to do at about 5,000 feet elevation, I want to give you an overview of the characteristics and the purposes of the church, why we exist in San Antonio. And the first one is this. And we're going to start with love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mark adds that in his gospel, meaning you love God with everything that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. We begin with worship. Worship, if we were just to give you a quick kind of a popular definition, would be magnifying God, and that's a lifestyle. Magnifying God is a lifestyle. We find this in Scripture. Psalm 36, or excuse me, Psalm 34, Psalm 69. David says in Psalm 34, Magnify the Lord with me. So he's calling out to people, and he says, Here's God, and what we're going to do is we're going to magnify him, we're going to make him bigger. And how do we do that? Let us praise His name together. That is, in unison, as a crowd, as a congregation, as a family, as a people, as a church. That's what Ben has been doing this morning. We've been praising Him in song together. And then in Psalm 69, he kind of flips the order, and he says, I'm going to sing praises to God's name. I'm going to sing to God, and in doing that, I will magnify Him as I give thanks. Now, one of the things that happens when you worship God is you're magnifying Him, which means when you magnify anything, whether it's a telescope or a microscope or just a a magnifying glass, when you put something under a magnifying glass, you're just enlarging it. You're making it bigger and bigger. You're making it more easily seen. In fact, the Anglo-Saxon word, the original word behind worship, the word worship means to make much. That is, you know, to make a big deal out of something, to magnify it, to make it greater. Now, when people think about worship, they typically think about singing. And, you know, everybody has an opinion. You know, songs are too loud or they're too slow or they're too traditional or too contemporary. I mean, typically when we think about singing or think about praise and about worship, we think about singing. But it's more than that. Worship is more than just singing. It is the life that we lead. Think about Romans chapter 12, all right, verse 1. Very famous passage as Paul begins to get into that very practical section, theologically speaking of the book of Romans. He says, I urge you. So this is something kind of important. It's on his heart. I'm urging you. This is something I really want to see happen in your life brothers and sisters, talking to the church, in view of God's mercy, that is, in the context of your life as a saved, reconciled, redeemed individual, sins forgiven, connected to God as a son or daughter, forever family, in eternity, blessed with joy, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And all the Jewish people would have thought, worship, sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, and to make sure that no one misses it, he says, this is your true and proper worship. Worship is one of the things that happens with your life when you love God with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. Now, I think one of the most dangerous, confusing myths that we live by in the 21st century in Western culture, is that worship is something that only happens at a certain time of the morning on Sundays. Worship is magnifying God with your life. You think about it? I mean, God creates the heavens and the earth in 6 days, on the 7th day he rests, and we only think. I mean, you think about every blessing that comes to you in creation. The fact that you can breathe, the fact that you can live, the fact that you can sustain yourself with food, the way that you're taking care of, the way that, yeah, I mean, just the way that the earth is and and all of that stuff. There are so many things to praise God and to worship God about each day, and we think that it's only one day of the week? Yes. First day of the week, we come together as a corporate body, as the body of Christ, to worship God together and encourage one another. But every day you give thanks to Him, and every day is a day of worship. I mean, you know what the greatest blessing in the world is every day? The presence of God in your life. And I'm telling you, when you begin to rub shoulders with God, and you realize that it's this father-son, father-daughter relationship, and you're walking planet Earth, and God is with you. He is beside you and in front of you and under you and over you, and He's in you, then you find every day a reason to worship God, to magnify Him, for Him to be big. And worship as just something that we do with our mouth is not big enough. That's why Jesus says you love God with everything that you are. Your body and your your soul and your mind and your heart and your strength. And one of the things that we understand more clearly than any other person on planet Earth is that when we worship God that way, every moment, every second of worship is countercultural. Because we live in a fallen world that says, Let's make God smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until he appears only as a dot on a page on a dusty history book of human you know, human history. When we as disciples of Jesus are making him bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. When we worship, it should say something astounding about the God who created the heavens and the earth and created you as a disciple of Jesus. In fact, Paul is going to write to the church in Corinth. All of that stuff about worship, you know, at the end of that book, he's going to say something so profound about even an unbeliever, somebody who is not yet a child of God, who watches you worship. He is convicted, chapter 14, verse 24, he is convicted and he is called to account by all. he The secrets of his heart are disclosed and he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring... That God is certainly among you. And you know why he says that? Because he can see God. Because God has been magnified with your life and with your worship and with your, your singing and with your discipleship and with your behavior and with your love and with your forgiveness and your ethic. God has been magnified. The world needs a church like that. And then number two, fellowship. Fellowship, easily defined. We live life together. This... You know, this along with, with ministry, fellowship and ministry, are love. this is what happens when you love your neighbor as you love yourself. It is a fact. I mean, you, just, you start with Matthew chapter 1 and you go all the way down to the end of the Gospel of John. One of the things that is clear is that Jesus did not interact with like-minded people only on the Sabbath. And go to synagogue and for the first time all week he'd see some people that believed like he did. That's not what happened. He lived his life with others all the time. He, he did not go it alone. He's traveling. He's eating. He's teaching. He's healing. He's working. Good times, bad times, morning times, evening times, lunch times. He is with like-minded people. And if Jesus needed to live with brothers and sisters, then we need to as well. I mean, to live our life on an island is one of the most unfortunate strategies for your life to fall apart as a disciple as they can be. I mean, we read in the earliest days of the church that this kind of living with fellow disciples is what the church committed itself to. In fact, in Acts 2, early years of the church, they have devoted themselves... To the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, friends, isolated disciples of Jesus are super, 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 super vulnerable in a fallen world. Temptations. How many times did you not know you were being tempted until a brother or sister stepped into your life and said, "Hey, something's going on here. That you there's a red flag that you're not seeing." or loneliness. I mean one of the most one of the one of the hardest things to deal with in life is loneliness and the negative influences and the bad decisions. Most of the ba- if not all of the bad decisions that I've made in this life and I would bet probably yours as well is that those decisions were made in a vacuum. There was no wise voice, male or female, going into your ear and saying, are you thinking about what you're doing? What is the wise thing to do? What is the story you want to come out of this? And those bad decisions are made over and over again. Well, next to fellowship is ministry. And saved people serve people. Saved people serve people. Ministry is what takes place when people love their neighbors. And one of the, the simplest applications is meeting the needs of your neighbors. So we go to 1 John chapter 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. We get that, that. That was service. He loves us. He died for us in service on the cross in order that we might live. And then John continues, And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. What he's saying there is that our fellowship and our ministry to each other should be so tight and so Christ-like in its love and perspective and scope that it would look like in our relationships with each other that we would die for each other. That we would die for each other. But that's kind of out there, right? Because I've never been asked to die for anybody. So not only are we asked to love in the big ways, die for each other, but in the little ways as well. And so the verse continues, if anyone has material possessions, if you've got some stuff, and see a brother or sister in need, but you have no pity on them, that means you don't emotionally connect to them and take care of that need, how can the love of God be in that person? Good question. What John is saying is that as, as disciples of Jesus, we, knowing what it took for us to be saved, that same kind of perspective of service is what permeates all that we are. And if we, ha- we say that we love God and we, s- we have stuff and there are people in our midst that need the stuff and there's no connection, there's no generosity, there's no ministry, then how can we really say that the love of God is a real thing? Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Even the Son of Man did not, be, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And then outreach. Found people, find people. Found people, find people. Outreach is what the church does when it takes the message of the gospel into all the world. And this is one of the things that Paul was trying to get across to Timothy. He said, you know, God, 1 Timothy chapter 2, wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. One of the ways that this church serves, one of the reasons why this church exists, a purpose in this community, is to be that bridge. Is to be the bridge between a person's lostness and a person's foundness in the gospel. That's why we exist. And so I know it's uncomfortable at times to share the gospel. I I know at times. But you know, some of the easiest things that we can do is we go out into the community and you see people every day is just to live... As a disciple of Jesus so that that message, worship, you know, magnifying God with your life and invite them. All you have to do is invite. Just invite. Just invite to your house for dinner. Invite to church. Invite to Starbucks or wherever you go to drink coffee. You just invite. You just, it's hospitality and it's worship and it's discipleship and it's love and it's gospel. And we bring people to Jesus. And their life is blessed beyond our ability to describe it. Uh, Mark Rankin this morning, we were talking uh, before the first service, and I said, man, are you happy today? He goes, yeah, but happiness is a choice. Joy is a gift. And that is the gift that you get from the gospel, the joy of being connected back to God. Last thing, and we're done, discipleship. Jesus did not call you to be a Christian. Jesus called you to follow Him. That's what it means to be a disciple. I have no problem with the word Christian. I'm a Christian. But sometimes we need to clarify, Jesus called us to follow Him. To be His disciple, which means to imitate His life. It means to be a mini Christ in the world, that they see Him through you in the way that you are discipled into the imitation of His life. That in the way that he lives, the way that he speaks, his value system, his emotional life, where he puts his affections, all of that stuff is a reflection that you have magnified through worship of Jesus in you. Disciples imitate their teacher. And as they grow, they change. Growing people change. It's one thing to grow old in a pew It's another thing altogether to grow up in the kingdom of God. And that's called bearing fruit. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. We just spent six weeks going over this passage. Quick reminder. Let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to, what's that word? Maturity. Jesus wants you to grow up and to look like Him. And so as we close down, I want to remind you that That the church exists for purpose. The greatest command plus the great commission equals the movement of God in His church in the community. And the way that we say it in this particular church, in the way that we remind ourselves, in the way that we we talk about the, the purpose of our church to people in the community is this way. We love God. And we love people. And we believe that the gospel changes the world. Let's stand and sing.